Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Eric Gomez. Since it came into office, the Trump administration, uh, mostly at the urging of National Security Advisor John Bolton, has withdrawn from several arms control agreements, starting with the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, and continuing with the INF, or Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. They've refused to start negotiating an extension to New START with Russia. This pattern led one observer to refer to John Bolton as a serial killer of arms control agreements. But the problems created by the deaths of these agreements will outlast the Trump administration. Agreements not negotiated today means no agreements on arms control tomorrow, opening up the disturbing possibility of renewed arms races and even the death of conventional arms control treaties. The next administration, whether that's in two or six years, is going to need to pick up the pieces. So we're joined today by one of the contributors to a new Cato Institute publication called America's Nuclear Crossroads to discuss the future of arms control. Maggie Tennis is a senior research assistant at the Brookings Institution, and her chapter in the report is entitled Preserving the U.S. Arms Control Legacy in the Trump Era. Maggie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So as usual, we're going to start with a little bit of news and we'll step back from arms control for a second. Um, and I think that the burning question on everybody's mind in Washington this week is whether it's possible for a diplomat to get declared persona non grata by tweet. That's the question we all have after a leaked diplomatic cable prompted Donald Trump to tweet about how terrible and unprofessional the British ambassador was. Um, Needless to say, the president reacted poorly to the leaked cable. He reacted publicly on Twitter. Um, and there's been a lot of fallout. So I thought we could talk about this for a couple of minutes. I think going into uh, what we're going to be talking about later in this discussion, too, uh, it is another example of how the Trump administration has not done a great job managing relations with more traditional U.S. partners and allies. Um, and while I certainly think that alliances don't need to be sacrosanct um, as they are, uh, actively sort of working against your alliance partners through things like this doesn't help. And it fits with the Iran nuclear deal because that's another example where European countries then other uh, the other parties of that deal who were required to come on board and really help make it such a great success have been kind of struggling to figure out what to do next and how to handle the current situation with Iran. I think it's sort of represents a double standard that we've seen in this administration, too, which is Trump calls of uh, diplomats and foreign leaders names, um, criticizes them all the time. And then this happens in private correspondence. And suddenly that's verboten and not OK. Um, and we've we've seen that double standard um, in what we're going to talk a little, a little about later, too, with international agreements where um, it's not OK for other countries to question them. But the U.S. can do whatever they want, even if that means, in, you know, basically destroying arms control treaties that have been around for a long time. Yeah, everybody's focused a lot, I think, on Trump's criticism of Sir Kim Darek, the, the ambassador. But in his tweet, he also started criticizing Theresa May, which he has done a number of times and talking about how terrible he believes her handling of Brexit is, how he's glad she's leaving office. I mean, that's uh, he's basically doing the same thing he's accusing the ambassador of, but he's doing it in public and in a far less pleasant way. Yeah, I uh, can't make anything that Britain's going through right now with Brexit any easier and trying to figure out who's going to be the new prime minister. Um, yeah, welcome to welcome to the Trump administration. Welcome to, you know, the double standards, the uh, public 
invective against others. It's just sort of been an unfortunate steady state, I think, of U.S. foreign policy in the world for the last two and a half years. The interesting thing, of course, on the on the British side of the equation was how it was received in London. Mm-hmm. Um, so we saw Downing Street, Theresa May, push back pretty strongly against Trump's criticism. We saw Jeremy Hunt, the, the foreign secretary, who's a current contender to be the next uh, prime minister. He also said, this is ridiculous. Trump shouldn't be criticizing the ambassador. And then we saw Boris Johnson, the most likely candidate to be the next prime minister, waffling about it and basically saying he wouldn't back the ambassador, which I think eventually was what prompted his resignation. So um, that's a little worrying, too, because it implies a certain level of Trumpism on that side of the Atlantic, too, that Boris Johnson is perhaps more willing to put personal ties with Donald Trump ahead of sort of traditional diplomatic goals. So I guess let's let's shift gears almost entirely, right? Because there's there's another big story in the news this week on foreign policy, and that's about conflict in Yemen. Now, that conflict's been going for about five years. It's been uh, very little chance that it was going to end anytime soon. But this week, we actually saw a major change, and that's that the United Arab Emirates finally confirmed that it has indeed been pulling its troops out of Yemen. It sees the situation as a stalemate. Um, It doesn't want to keep its troops in what it sees as a potential quagmire um, and is basically breaking with Saudi Arabia on that. Do we think this could finally push things in the direction of a diplomatic resolution there? I'm not certain that it will, but I think it's interesting to see a pattern of more countries and leaders breaking with Saudi Arabia um, in a way that we we didn't used to see. And I wonder if Saudi Arabia will become more of a persona non grata in the Middle East. I, I'm curious, too, about this decision on the impact on Congress's role in the Yemen conflict. This is one foreign policy issue area where I think Congress has done a very good job of trying to get back some of its uh, constitutionally mandated powers about war and peace and armed conflict um, that it has pretty much abandoned, especially under the uh, Bush 43 and Obama administrations. And I hope that this uh, announcement from the UAE will help give some more momentum to those efforts to get Congress more involved in this policy issue. There's been some movement on that this week in Congress, too, actually, um, on the NDAA. There's a whole bunch of amendments related to either to Yemen, to Saudi arms sales, or there's a particularly interesting one about barring visas for Saudi officials except at the highest levels, um, all of which obviously have to still go through um, the, the congressional process and they probably won't survive. But the fact they're being proposed is interesting. Um, and then we've also had some hearings this week um, where the administration is sort of trying to defend its attempts to circumvent congressional controls on on arms exports. So again, Congress really seems to be stepping up on Saudi Arabia in a way it's not on other issues. Yeah. And I think most of that can be traced back to what happened with Khashoggi. Uh, Congress especially seemed to have reacted to that in what I would deem a more sort of appropriate and horrified way and tried to use their power to do something about it. Um, Ultimately, I don't know how successful it will be because the the executive does have a lot of power when it comes to crafting and implementing foreign policy. But it is heartening uh, for me, at least, to see Congress taking such an, in- an interest and really not backing down even when the administration pushes back. 
Well, I think that that sort of covers the news. We've barely scratched the surface of what happened this week, but I think we can leave it there for the moment. Um, and, and I want to move on to our main topic because there is a lot to cover on the question of arms control and nuclear issues in the Trump administration. Um, so this is the second of our two-part series focusing on the future of America's nuclear arsenal. The report that we are mostly talking about that our conversations this week and our conversation last week with Todd Harrison are drawn from is called America's Nuclear Crossroads. And it looks at everything from nuclear modernization to the role of space in, in these discussions. Um, and so before we, we come to you, Maggie, and talk about your chapter, I want to talk a little to Eric, who's one of the project's editors and has been working on this for a while, um, and see, can, you know, can you tell us a little about this project? Why do you think it's important? And why should we be talking about nuclear issues now when everybody sort of thinks the Cold War is over? Absolutely. So America's Nuclear Crossroads, which my co-editor Caroline Dormany and I have been working on for quite some time now, um, and Caroline used to be at the Cato Institute and did most of her work on this project while at Cato, and she is now at Women's Action for New Directions, or WAND, uh, is designed to be a sort of comprehensive look at some of the major policy challenges in nuclear deterrence and arms control. And each chapter is rooted in a sort of theoretical or historical understanding of nuclear policy, but it doesn't get too far in the weeds on that side. Instead, each chapter tries to uh, talk about current problems and potential future problems and make some actual policy recommendations towards solving those problems. Um, the idea for it came out of a, a speech that was given in early 2018 by the General Hyten, the current commander of Strategic Command, where he said that our ways of thinking about nuclear deterrence are not incorrect, but they weren't current, something to that effect. And so that sort of motivated me to, to think about this project and to help launch it with, with Caroline and think about, okay, how do we make it current? What do we talk about? What lessons from the Cold War are applicable and which lessons are useful but might not match up to current and future conditions? Um, and all of this will be coming out very soon. Uh, it is currently in the printing process, and we hope to release it before the end of July. If you go to cato.org slash crossroads, you can find, which will be in the show notes, you can find three preview chapters of the anthology that we released earlier this year. Um, the updated PDF with the whole thing will be posted there soon. Um, and you can also fill out a form to receive email updates about events and other announcements about the project. So I hope you check it out. And Maggie's chapter on arms control is uh, a very good chapter, and it's one of nine total. So it looks at a lot of different uh, issue areas. Awesome. Thank you. And I will absolutely come to you with future marketing needs, too, because you sell a product very well, Eric. Thank you. <laughs> so as Eric said, Maggie's chapter is on arms control. Um, and there's there's a lot in this anthology, but arms control is one of these issues that everybody kind of thought wasn't particularly important. It was just something that rumbled along the background. And in the Trump administration, it really just seems to have hit a bunch of roadblocks. Um, so I thought we could just start by talking a little about how you see these issues and how they've changed in the post-Cold War world. Where are we today in arms control and why is it different? Um, so I, I think one point you made I want to just uh, point out, which is that arms control was rumbling around in the background, like you said, and, and wasn't something that we really noticed or thought about until now. And I think that's one of the big successes of arms control. It was it was doing its job. Um, 
different treaties uh, beget other treaties, and it was keeping the world safer. And in the last few years, we've seen a lot of that go away. And we've seen this institution of arms control sort of unravel as a result of policies implemented largely by the Trump administration. Um, and I think that that's, you know, you, you don't know what you got till it's gone, right? And I think that that's the same with arms control. Um, before the Soviet Union fell and during the Cold War, arms control looked slightly different than what it's looked like post-Cold War. Uh, it was more focused on treaties to regulate uh, strategic competition, uh, less about cuts and disarmament, less about nonproliferation. After the Cold War, you saw arms control agreements focusing more on um, cuts and capping, capping nuclear weapons and preventing uh, other countries from uh, acquiring nuclear weapons, although we did see more nuclear states. But I think that the most significant watershed moment for arms control was not necessarily the end of the Cold War. I think it was the advent of this administration, because even after the Soviet Union fell, you we saw a lot of those agreements that were negotiated between the U.S. and Russia um, endure. And we saw Russia and the U.S. able to work on other arms control treaties, like New START, for instance. But in the last two and a half years or so, we've seen a lot of that fall apart. Uh, the U.S. has pulled out of the JCPOA, pulled out of the INF Treaty. And so there's this uh, sea change for arms control that is um, pretty discouraging and troubling for those of us who who think that that these agreements are really important for maintaining strategic stability. I mean, something I find pretty interesting as, as a relative outsider to this topic is that it seems like the players have also changed in arms control. So you alluded to this a little, um, but it really was very much a, a bipolar, bipartisan thing, arms control during the Cold War. It was about the US and the Soviet Union. It was about strategic stability, as you said. Um, and now we we do. We have agreements like the JCPOA or the agreed framework with North Korea that fell through that are trying to stop states getting nuclear weapons. Um, we have talk about China that we'll get to a little later about how it's a sort of a rising player in these debates. Um, and, and really just the, the parties involved have shifted a lot. And Maggie, uh, going forward on that topic, um, do you think that so one interesting thing about the arms control agreements that we've sort of seen unravel under the Trump administration is you have one old one and one new one. You have the INF, which was signed in 1987, and you have the JCPOA or Iran deal, which came in, or in 2015. And one issue that I've been thinking about on the arms control space is how do you make sure that old agreements stay relevant to changing reality? Um, so looking ahead in this new post-Cold War world and referencing, uh, as Emma talked about, about the addition of new players in the space and sort of new frameworks for discussion, uh, if arms control is to be more successful going forward or, or be more impactful, um, where do you think a next administration after the Trump one would have to go to kind of reinvigorate America's role in all this? Yeah, so I think one of the unfortunate aspects of the INF Treaty going away in a few weeks and likely not extending New START is that those are two treaties, two examples of treaties that provide um, a framework, like you said, for future arms control agreements that would involve more countries or that would account for new emerging technologies um, or that could serve as um, models for new rules of the road or norms for uh, uh, technologies that we're seeing, cyber, for instance. 
Um, and I think that if you have to start from scratch, it makes it a lot more difficult, especially because each of these treaties involves um, implementing bodies or um, compliance bodies that are able to work with the treaty and potentially could be used to adapt it to um, whether that means to multilateralize it or adapt it to new uh, systems. Um, so without that, you're starting from scratch and that's always more difficult. Yeah, we've had a lot of discussion on this podcast, I think, about the JCPOA and how it could have been a model for other states, could have been a model for North Korea. But given that we've jettisoned it, it's probably not doing that anymore. Yeah. And one point that I actually make in the the chapter and the anthology is that um, the U.S. decision to pull out of the JCPOA and the developments that we're watching right now uh, with Iran um, are sort of a blow to coalition built nonproliferation. Um, I don't know that countries in the future will be, especially Europe, will be as willing to go into these sorts of agreements given what's happened in the last year. Hmm. So in addition to that impact on the negative impact on coalition arms control efforts, what are the other implications of the Trump decision to uh, withdraw from that agreement? And do you think that there's any hope at this point of the U.S. returning to the JCPOA or have so many things sort of changed not only for the U.S. position, but also for uh, Europe and even the Iranian domestic political space that a return to the old agreement might not be possible and a new administration, if it comes into power in 2021, would the United States have to negotiate a new sort of agreement that isn't quite as much that we got in JCPOA? That's that's interesting. I think that uh, despite the criticism that the Iran deal um, drew and continues to draw, um, that many in Washington would agree that once we were in it, it was a mistake to pull out. And I think that the escalating tensions and this deteriorating situation with Iran, um, in fact, Iran surpassing its uranium enrichment levels this week, uh, set by the JCPOA, um, are a implication and a consequence of Trump withdrawing from the Iran deal. Uh, and it does definitely make it more difficult for the U.S. to return, even if there was the will to do that, because you've got um, a lot of outraged parties. You've got Iran mad. You've got the European Europe very disappointed in the U.S. And China this week came out and, and blamed the U.S. for um, incidents in, in the Middle East and destabilizing situation there because they withdrew from from the JCPOA. Um, I think it would be possible to reenter the Iran deal if there's a new administration, um, if it was able to survive until then. And so much of that hinges on what Europe's able to accomplish in helping Iran continue to see the economic benefit to the deal, which we know right now that they're they're not. So that's that would be one way. And that that hinges on two very big ifs. If Europe can make the deal work for Iran and if there's a new administration, because I don't think there's any will in this administration to do it. Um, however, maybe one counterpoint to that would be that we can't predict Trump. And with North Korea, we saw him we saw a ratcheting up of tensions and provocations on both sides and um, insults exchanged on Twitter and then Trump deciding that he wanted to do a deal with North Korea. So it invo involves thinking outside the box and it's a little crazy, but I guess it's possible that he could decide that he wants to um, be the good guy and do a deal with Iran. And I don't know what that would look like, but I'm sure it would he would he would say that it was bigger and better and would take credit for it, even if it looked similar. 
You know, I'm, I'm interested in, I guess, the question of where the JCPOA goes from here, not so much even from the point of, of US-Iranian relations, which we've talked about a lot in the past on this podcast. Um, but I, I guess I'm interested in in the question you brought up a little earlier about coalition building, about future non-proliferation agreements of this type. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about North Korea. Are there other places where this kind of agreement is something that would be a model? My, my understanding is there aren't that many other proliferation problem states at the moment. Yeah, I can't think of any. Well, if the situation with the JCPOA continues to deteriorate, I, I, I expect the proliferation problems to come up in the Middle East. Uh, the Saudis are very interested in nuclear power. Uh, I believe the Jordanians are as well. Um, and there has been, although I'm not as clear on the details, there has been some issues recently with the United States and Saudi trying to get a nuclear technology sharing agreement for the civil for civil nuclear energy. Um, and there are some questions about will that agreement have the same sort of stringent standards on it that other U.S. agreements with other countries uh, have had. And I think that given how this administration has dealt with the Saudis and sort of given them a blank check, um, there is reasonable worry that any sort of civil nuclear agreement with the Saudis might not have those sort of stringent things attached, um, If especially if Congress is more willing to uh, sort of be more harsh on the Saudis than the Trump administration. Uh, so I do worry about Will the administration attempt to do some things that might not be completely above board uh, to help the Saudis out, even if Congress resists? Yeah, very inconsistent, aren't they? I wonder if that could become a campaign issue. Mm-hmm. In 2020. <laughs> well, let's shift gears um, away from sort of the, the non-proliferation side of things and more towards the classic arms control conception, um, because the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, is going away, I believe, at the start of August. August 2nd. Yeah. Um, and that I find a little more interesting almost because Trump campaigned on pulling out of the Iran deal. He was very clear that he was going to rip it up, you know, justifications notwithstanding. Um, but the the INF decision seems much more to be driven by John Bolton, some of the people around him. And their ostensible reason is that China is a problem and that we need intermediate nuclear missiles in order to handle China. It, it sounds pretty good on the surface of it. doesn't make a lot of sense if you go a little deeper. Um, so I guess let's talk a little about the INF, what we withdrew from, why we withdrew from it, um, and why that matters. I think the China rationale, I just, I can't, I think it's so interesting. I can't get over it because Russia said it first. In the early 2000s, Russia, Russian officials came to um, and, uh, Robert Gates, Secretary of Defense, and said that because of the INF Treaty, they were not able to adequately respond to, um, quote, threats on their periphery, meaning China, and requested uh, examining multilateralizing the treaty. And the U.S. brushed off those requests. And here we are using that justification. And I think it's really ironic um, and it just falls flat upon closer observation because um, where would we put put those systems? Where, I, I don't think any allies in Asia um, would agree to host them. Right, and there's also an aspect of you know how do how would similar U.S. systems actually help in the military balance with China? Um, because from the Chinese perspective, you have large landmass, lots of space to hide things, 
and you have relatively few targets, a, a relatively small target set on the US and allied side of things you can hit to really mess with the US ability to conduct warfare in the, in the Western Pacific. Um, the US trying to target China would be a very different story. There'd be a much larger target set. You'd have more limited deployment options, et cetera. So I think that the sort of operational flexibility argument that supporters of leaving INF because of China um, make, while it is true that it would add a level of flexibility and, and add some more options, I'm sort of suspicious of the strategic impact that that would have. I don't think it would be as great as assumed. Um, but we do also have to talk about Russia as part of this equation here, because I think there were the, sort of like two big arguments for why to leave. One, China was sort of the argument of the future, right? This is the big future problem, and this treaty constrains us from responding to it adequately. The, the sort of present problem was Russia violations of the treaty and actual deployments of, of uh, violating intermediate range uh, cruise missiles, um, cruise missiles in particular. Uh, so, and, and this sort of goes back to an earlier point that we, that I asked about of, you know, if you have a treaty where it's one side is violating it and the other side isn't, how do you sort of grapple with that? And I, I don't think the U S did a good job of, uh, of trying to address the INF violations of Russia. Um, instead we just sort of wanted to get out. Yeah. Is, is it better to remain within a treaty and try and solve compliance issues that way or to withdraw over the compliance issues, I, I guess, is the big question here. I think it would have made more sense to stay in the treaty. I, I know that um, many in this administration and also in the Obama administration didn't think there was any chance of Russia returning to compliance. But I think that by being the being the side that officially killed the treaty, um, we took the Kremlin's bait a little bit like that's what that's what they ultimately wanted. Um, and so now the U.S. gets international blame for killing that treaty um, and doing so. So divisions with our NATO allies, which ultimately serves Russian geopolitical interests. Right. And Russia also has an existing lead in these systems. And if you have a treaty in place, yes, they can violate and yes, they are violating. But there is still some of that measure of, you know, they have they have an incentive to not do it as blatantly if there's an agreement in place. So that way they can sort of hedge and say, oh, no, like they're lying. These systems aren't violating, but maybe we won't build as much. In the absence of any kind of agreement, then that sort of political, even sort of reputational cost um, goes away. So, yeah, handing Russia a sort of permission slip to, you know, keep expanding this thing when they already have the lead on R&D and deployment of violating systems uh, seems like a lose-lose proposition for the United States. So, I mean, that's, I guess, the, that's the technical uh, upshot mm. of all of this. What's the strategic upshot of this? So we are out of the INF. There's really no prospect we'll have it back again anytime soon, if ever. What What does that mean for the way the U.S. nuclear arsenal is deployed, for how we deal with deterrence? What are the big issues? Uh, so I don't think the INF forces the U.S. is going to build will actually be nuclear armed. Um, this is so the the treaty name is intermediate range nuclear forces, and at the time it was made, that was true, right? Intermediate range missiles were nuclear missiles. Um, however, since then, with improvements in guidance systems and other technology, most of the weapon systems, especially on the Chinese side that the U.S. is worried about, are conventionally armed. Um, and so far, it seems like U.S. officials have said that when we deploy 
our own systems, they haven't said that they explicitly that these will be nuclear systems. They have focused more on saying these will be conventional versions, which can still have a serious impact on nuclear stability and nuclear deterrence. Um, it just might not be, you know, us doing the same sort of things that they do. I still don't know what the strategic advantage is because NATO uh, this week said that they won't deploy um, any any systems um, resulting from this treaty going away. And then again, like we were talking about, where would what would the U.S. do with them in Asia? So I don't really know what the strategic advantage is. Like a lot of things in the Trump administration seems a little perplexing on closer examination. Um, <laughs> well, I guess let's let's turn to the future. Um, because there are other arms control agreements on the table, um, our arms control serial killer, John Bolton, could still take down New Start uh, if it comes up for renegotiation and potentially some some other things. So um, let's talk about New Start. What's going on here? So New Start is set to expire in February 2021. Um, the deal can be extended by five years if both sides agree. Russia said that they would be interested in starting talks on extension early in the Trump administration, but the Trump administration rebuked that offer. And then now that John Bolton is national security advisor, it seems very unlikely that extension will happen. In fact, he himself said it was unlikely um, a few weeks ago. Uh, and I, I don't see the possibility of it happening before the end of this administration. Even if we have a new administration in 2020, there's not really enough time to extend at that point. I don't think things look good for a new start. Yeah. Would there be enough time? So 2021, that would give you what? A year. Would it be possible to just do a straight extension with no real renegotiation? It seems like even that would be tough. I think it would give him a month. Yeah, it, it would be. Oh, you're right. Yeah. yeah because it's a 2020 election. Uh -huh. And so, OK, yeah. So that is definitely you not a possibility. A few weeks from the inauguration to the the date that it expires. Yeah. Okay. So that's so that's problematic because New Start is the treaty that governs sort of caps on U.S. and Russian um, non-intermediate nuclear forces. Yeah, and it has been, and this is one area where I think the arms control community is going to have to do a lot of work in terms of communicating to Congress that arms control exists for strategic benefit. It isn't some kind of a gift to the other side. It isn't just about U.S. concessions. Concessions of some kind should happen in a negotiated process. But at its core, arms control is about improving the, the security and the strategic position of the United States. And New START does this primarily through a lot of uh, transparency measures and a lot of inspections that happen from both sides, which helps the United States get more information about Russian nuclear forces that it otherwise would could find out, but it would take a lot more effort and time and money, and you might not get as detailed information in the process. Um, so I think there is this a perception that, you know, oh, if we just get rid of arms control, we will not be constrained, and therefore we can compete better in this new era of great power competition we find ourselves in. But that argument ignores this other aspect of arms control where, you know, having that transparency helps you get information. It helps you plan your own forces. It helps you be more efficient about defense spending, all sorts of benefits. And I think that, you know, understanding what those benefits are is is, is something that is being frankly lost in the public discussion. As a, as a sort of U.S.-Russia relations person, I'm also somewhat concerned about the fact that arms control is the only functioning U.S.-Russia uh, avenue of discussion 
at the moment, and even that is not very good. And it's worth remembering that unlike every other discussion we have about great power politics in the sphere of nuclear weapons, Russia is the major competitor, the major threat. It's actually not so much China. So, well, let's talk about China for a minute, because um, a lot of the rationales behind this stuff seem to boil down to China, the Trump administration. There's talk about, you know, we should have more of these agreements be multilateral, the Chinese should be involved. But the Chinese also, as I understand it, have much smaller arsenals, um, which would make it very difficult to involve them in these treaties directly. Um, where does China fit into all of this? Yeah, so China has a nuclear arsenal around uh, 280 nuclear weapons, and the U.S. and Russia, uh, their arsenals hover around 6,000. Uh, we don't know the exact numbers anymore because the administration decided to stop publicizing that information. Um, so, in so China is just not can just cannot par like participate on the same level as Russia and the U.S. And so that means that a lot of the justification, for instance, for the INF Treaty just falls a little flat. And for China, they also think about, in terms of how they think about nuclear forces and how they think about nuclear strategy and doctrine is also very different from the U.S. and Russia, where the U.S. and Russia are all about having, you know, equal and basically having equal forces on both sides. Um, China has historically been content with a much smaller arsenal um, because, in their view, as long as you know, one or two warheads can get through, we're fine. We don't have to try and match you. We don't have to try and do these countervailing or counterstrike strategies where we're targeting each other's nukes. We're just going to hit your major population centers if you ever try to hit us with a nuke. Um, and this has been the sort of rationale since the beginning of their nuclear program. Um, and it's been remarkably resilient um, even as circumstances have changed. In terms of getting them into a new arms control agreement, um, I I think it is, and the Trump administration, I think Trump himself has expressed interest in, in making this happen. And while I sort of applaud the idea, I think that there is a lot of misunderstanding about what China's nuclear arsenal is, what it does, and that will lead to a problem if we try to just say, okay, we want like a new start type agreement, but with China and Russia too. Um, so I, I guess, Maggie, to, to, to ask you a question about the arms control side of this, if we wanted to sort of expand arms control and try to bring the Chinese in, um, how do you think those discussions would have to go? Not necessarily in the, in the details, but just what do you talk about? Do you, do you talk about the forces you have or do you talk about more like behavior, confidence building, and transparency. Yeah. So um, I think that's exactly it is transparency. I think that China's not going to enter into the type of deal that I think Trump has in mind when he says he wants to do a big nuclear deal with China and Russia because they would, um, by virtue of the size of their nuclear arsenal, always be a junior partner and China's not going to take that status. And there's also just no incentive for them to be in a situation where they're capping or cutting their their nuclear arsenal given the size differential. Um, and also they're they're mad at the US right now, especially around the JCPOA. And the other the other point is that Russia, I don't think, is going to would enter into something like that at this point because of tensions between the US and Russia. But if it were going to happen, I think it would have to be focused on transparency mechanisms, um, maybe rules of the road with uh, emerging technologies um, where where China has um, is a little bit more focused. 
perhaps transparency mechanisms could model off what exists in New Start. Um, but I think if that were going to happen, it would have to evolve out of the framework of the strategic stability talks that happened under the Obama administration, um, because that's sort of the only existing framework for that. And I don't know that 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 this administration is going to uh, initiate something like that. And to be honest, once you get to the point of talking to China about their fairly small nuclear arsenal, do you bring in the British? Do you bring in the French? Do you bring in the Indians and the Pakistanis? You say it starts to get a very strange conversation, which I, I feel like that's just why nobody has really touched this issue before. Yeah, it's a very it's very complicated because, like you said, you know, the more people you add, it raises questions about who else. Um, and there's a lot of variation in that group you just mentioned in terms of force sizes thinking like just sort of uh, the intellectual background of where these countries think deterrence, how it is generated and where does it come from? Um, and I agree, yeah, it's going to be very difficult, but looking forward and to tie back all the way to uh, America's nuclear crossroads again, and what we want to do with this project is, you know, take a critical look at, okay, what are the problems we're facing today? And I, don't, I think arms control is one of these areas where applying sort of Cold War lessons and solutions to these issues going forward is going to be really tricky because if you want to expand it, you you just can't do the Cold War thing. It just doesn't, it, it doesn't mesh on easily. If we wanted to just keep our arms control only with the Russians, that's a different story. But I think that we're going to have to try to expand it if we want to use it as a tool to uh, bring some more security um, at the nuclear level. Well, perhaps that just suggests a last question then. I mean, it seems like this is a very depressing time for arms control, but what we've talked about here suggests that perhaps it's more a depressing time for arms control specifically on the Cold War model. Um, so is there light at the end of the tunnel? I think there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think it's a um, glimmer right now, but I think that it takes... Um, you know, a younger generation that's not as entrenched in the Cold War model of arms control to think anew about these issues. And that's what's really uh, exciting about the project that Eric and Caroline initiated is because it's an attempt to start that. Um, and there are there is there is starts to this, you know, people are trying. But um, I think that that's maybe the silver lining of what's happening with this administration is it's pushing us to think outside the box around arms control. Uh, maybe that can rekindle that flame. That seems to be the theme of the Trump administration, uh, smashing down barriers, prompting us all to think of new solutions, but not really suggesting any themselves. So I think that's a great place to wrap up. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Maggie. Thank you. Um, you can find the report, America's Nuclear Crossroads, um, at our website. That's cato.org forward slash crossroads. And we'll link it in the show notes for this episode, too. We hope you'll check it out. Um, so thanks to you all for listening. Thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman. Um, if you want to continue the conversation, you can find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at powerproblems. And if you like the show, we'd love it if you would leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts.